This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts. Thanks for downloading this episode of In Our Time. There's a reading list to go with it on our website and you can get news about our programmes if you follow us on Twitter at BBC In Our Time. I hope you enjoyed the programmes. Hello, in 1618 a war began in Europe on such a scale and with such devastation that its like was not seen for another 300 years. It pitched Catholics against Protestants, Lutherans against Calvinists and Catholics against Catholics across the Holy Roman Empire, drawing in their neighbours. And it lasted for 30 gruelling years from the defenestration of Prague in 1618 to the Peace of Westphalia in 1648. Many more citizens died than soldiers and famine was so great that even cannibalism was excused. We're discussing the Thirty Years' War now, as this autumn we asked you to suggest today's topic. This one came from Dan Jackson, Barbara Buck, Andre Keel, Rex Walters and I could go on about another dozen supporters. My thanks to them and to all of you for sending in several hundred ideas. With me to discuss the Thirty Years' War are Peter Wilson, Chichili Professor of History of War at the University of Oxford, Olinka Rublak, Professor of Early Modern European History at the University of Cambridge and Fellow of St John's College, and Toby Osborne, Associate Professor in History at Durham University. Olinka Rublak, Voltaire was to call the Holy Roman Empire now the Holy nor Roman nor an Empire. What's the Holy Roman Empire that we're meeting in 1618? It's a pretty complex um, entity. We need to go a bit into the history of it, but it really, really matters to understand it. And I'll tell you why. Because we now think of the Thirty Years' War as really not primarily motivated by religious division, but primarily as a conflict about the nature of governance in the German land and about the balance of power in Europe. So to understand the issues about the nature of governance, we need to understand what the Holy Roman Empire was. And it might be easiest, however, first to think about what it was not. So it was not a monarchy with one ruler, and it was not just a confederation of territories without any overlord like Switzerland. It had been shaped in the Middle Ages as a feudal union of personal association bound to an elected emperor. And it was also religiously supercharged. The idea was that here was an empire that was the guardian of Christianity. And that was, in fact, the last world empire, um, as prophesied in the book of Daniel in the Bible. So with an elected emperor, the key question is, well, who elects the emperor? And this was laid down in the Golden Bowl in 1356. Um, There were three archbishops, uh, Mainz, Cologne and Trier, and four uh, secular territories that could elect the emperor, um, uh, Palatinate, Saxony, Brandenburg and Bohemia. And this matters for our story and for 1618 because the question is who's missing so there's another big B that's missing that's Bavaria Bavaria turns into a very powerful um, uh, territory and is not amongst these electors how big was the Holy Roman Empire? Using contemporary the contemporary map of Europe, how big was it? It was all of Germany and what else? You see, one of the tricky things to understand about it is that it's actually not a territory. That's why I said, you know, it's a ah, it's a it's a feudal um, a configuration, really. With an, but it reaches, if you want, at times um, from 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 uh, you know from the north up to northern Italian territories. I mean, it's obviously you know very big part of of Central Europe we're looking at. Um, the emperors that were elected then tended to be 
Catholic Habsburgs always were in our period. Uh, this configuration was put on the strain by the Reformation, uh, but these strains were resolved in the Peace of Augsburg in 1555. In the Peace of Augsburg, as I understand it, each prince or ruler could choose the religion, could choose their religion for their people. How did that work out? Well, it worked out surprisingly well. So you can see it strengthened uh, the territorial state in quite an amazing way. It's that, you know, if, if the ruler changed uh, his uh, mind or mind, then the population had to follow and dissidents were given uh, the right to emigrate. What we see after 1555 uh, for about uh, 25 years is that we have two emperors, Ferdinand I and Maximilian II, who are actually very uh, engaged with the politics in the German lands. There uh, a number of political summits. Um, there's an interest in getting the institutions of the empire, such as supreme courts that mandate against the miscarriage of justice to work. So the view again that this was a, a kind of a, a configuration that was doomed to failure uh, after the peace of Augsburg and after uh, quite the amazing gesture that said we can tolerate two faiths, Lutheran and Catholic faiths, is just not true. So um, up until the 1580s, this works pretty well. Then we see the pressure and tensions mounting. And for uh, a number of reasons. One is that we have uh, Calvinism as another Protestant uh, faith that emerges alongside Lutheranism. Secondly, we have the re Catholicization after the ending of the Council of Trent, and that is often realized in quite a militant way to re Catholicize areas. We have a new emperor, Rudolph II, who turns out to be less effective. We have, and this is really a headache, for instance, for historians, we have two calendars operating for 1582. One that was a papal reform calendar and another one the Protestants still hung on to. Well, thank you very much. It's a, you, you gave us a lot, of bu- a lot of building blocks there. So we had, um, at that time we come to this, we had Protestants against Calvinists as well as Protestants against Catholics as well as Catholics against Catholics and a resurgence of the idea that Catholics should control the whole caboose. Can I move on you to now, you, Peter? Um, were these tensions... Um, about the freedom of religion or about the rights and powers of states within the empire? Um, well, it's a bit of a mixture. I mean, I think that the, the it's a misnomer to think of it as a, as a religious war because we tend to think of a religious war uh, in, in very much stark terms as a, as a choice, say, between a secular and a, and a religious outlook. Um, and we have to, in order to, I think, to understand the role of religion in this period, we've got to sort of rethink ourselves back into how um, people in the 16th and 17th century um, saw religion in their lives. And it was uh, sort of an, an atheist or secular position was, was unthinkable. So religion permeated everything. So in some senses, of course, yes, it's about religion. Um, but I think the way to understand that is to think that there is a the majority of the population and certainly the majority of the political leadership are what I would call moderates. So yes, they want to reunite um, Christendom in under their interpretation of Christianity, but they're fairly pragmatic about how they're going to achieve that. Uh, and there's only a minority who are who are milit- militants who are the ones who tend to follow a kind of providentialist um, theology where they might actually feel personally summoned by God to, to fight and to take up arms. But they're usually members of the clergy and they're usually outside the realm of power. Was there much resentment? Uh, it seems curious if there wasn't. Against Protestantism, Lutheran Protestantism, saying that the whole of the Catholic Church was 
corrupt and the Catholic Church saying we are the one church, we are St. Peter's representation on earth. Seems to me religion might have played, you tell me, you said not much of it, hadn't much of an impact, mm. that seems to me. And you tell me. Yeah. Um, well, the if we read the polemic, um, uh, and again, this comes from mainly from theologians. Uh, it, that is very virulent, and there is a, a lot of uh, a lot of critique. Uh, but we have to remember that um, people are having to navigate these sort of divisions. Um, sometimes in in some cities where there are minorities and so on, and yes, there are there are certain situations where there is rioting and uh, protests, but equally around a fifth of marriages are cross confessional marriages. So people sort of bump along, they rub along, and they have other interests too. And I think that's the the thing that's usually missing from the explanation. What are the other interests? Well, if we um, if we take uh, the factors that are actually going to lead to war, um, a major part of this is access to the church land. Um, so these make up about a seventh of the empire. Uh, so on the one hand, it is a religious issue, uh, but it's also an issue concerning, for example, the family politics of the German princes, because the, diff the different princely families who had embraced Lutheranism didn't want to give up um, their access to the church lands. That's the convenient place where you put your unmarried daughter or your younger son who's not going to inherit and they can exercise uh, um, uh, political influence. Um, so there are these dynastic and family politics um, that are going to play, in fact, a major part in, in what happens. The rather spectacular event that seemed to kick it off in 1618, the defenestration in the Protestant city of Prague, where three Catholics were thrown out of a high window, only to land safely on a dung heap. There must be a, there must be a moral there somewhere. Uh, why was that such a trigger? Well, uh, I mean, they land on the dung heap, but in, in the kind of um, Protestant uh, propaganda, um, and there is a wonderful uh, uh, counter image to this, which is that the Madonna unfurls her cloak and they glide um, to the ground. If you actually go to Prague, you'll see that there is a kind of escarpment and they, they sort of fall out of the window, they're heavily bundled up in cloaks, and they sort of basically bounce off this, this slope at the bottom. They're injured, but they're, 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 uh, they're not why killed. Was, why was this a trigger? Well... Uh, um, the, it, it's, it's, a, it's a deliberately provocative act, uh, and it's intended by a minority of um, malcontented uh, Protestant nobles in Bohemia who've been largely excluded from political office um, to force people to take, uh, to take up sides. Uh, it doesn't immediately um, trigger a major conflict. There are, there's a, a long uh, series of negotiations to try and um, settle this, uh, but the problem is that uh, both sides feel that um, by arming uh, they can uh, add weight uh, into their negotiating position. So there, there is a shift to war. Toby Osborne, how strong were the forces, the alliances, uh, backing the Catholic uh, Holy Roman Empire? Well, the emperor himself actually lacked the resources in the when war broke out actually to pursue a war against these rebels so far as he saw them. Uh, and in the first instance, he turned to Ferdinand II, we're talking about here, the emperor from 1619. He turns to his Spanish cousins, who at that moment are fairly willing to offer support to uh, the imperial Habsburgs. The Spanish at that moment were at peace with the Dutch. Um, that truce was going to expire in 1621, but nevertheless, they're at peace. But they've got an eye on the fact that war may well resume. So the Spanish have their own strategic interests in supporting the emperor at this stage. 
the emperor also turns to Maximilian of Bavaria, and we've heard from Alinka about Bavaria already, a power that's ambitious but feels partly marginalised. It's not an electoral power at this stage. And so the emperor um, can't necessarily defeat these rebels by himself, but he does so in alliance with these self-interested parties, his cousins and the Bavarians at the head of the Catholic League. What grounds did the Protestants have, if any, <clears throat> for thinking that they could resolve this quickly by force? Well, I'm not sure the Protestants uh, necessarily did think that they could resolve this uh, well, by why force. Why did they keep going then? Um, partly circumstance. I think this is one of the features, and Peter and Ulinka may have their own uh, ideas about this. This is, for me, is one of the distinguishing features of this period, is that combatants tended to think that they were in the right and that uh, arguments for going to war partly rested on recourse to legal arguments, to dynastic arguments, to principles. And certainly the uh, elector of Palatinate, who became the elected king of Bohemia, thought he was in the right. The problem was so did Ferdinand, and this is where we had this loggerhead situation where neither side felt able or willing, at least at those moments, to back down. Circumstances changed things at various moments. Frederick defeated wanted a settlement but was unable to reach a settlement and things became more problematic when his home territories were occupied as a consequence of the rebellion. Was there any sense at an early stage that this was going to become a 30 years war? No, and again I think um, it at various moments we have these sort of staging posts so to speak in the conflict as it unfolded where peace could have been obtained and possibly peace could have been reached quite early in this, in this period uh, after the Battle of White Mountain where um, the Bohemians are defeated, Frederick's defeated at the hands of the imperialists. Um, but for circumstances, again, uh, uh, mitigated against that, Frederick retired out of uh, Bohemia, retired northwards, um, and uh, actually managed uh, in the aftermath to muster some forces uh, which uh, provoked an imperial response. And as part of the actual package of rewarding the Spanish and the Bavarians, they went on then to occupy Ferdinand's patrimonial territories. And it's at that point where things arguably begin to move beyond just a regional rebellion to a much larger international conflict. Seems, Olinka, it seems rather stop-start. It's coming to an end, then another, <coughs> another power comes in, another force to be reckoned with, and on it goes again. Then, as Toby said, it, it settles down to, a, to what's going to become a very long war. It was to devastate the region. Can you give us some idea... Uh, what the ordinary people suffered during this time. Yeah, first of all, perhaps we should talk about figures, but they're very hard to come by. We now think about 15% population loss across the German lands. Um, but the key point here is to say it was not a collective trauma. So um, this did not hit Germany at the same time and in the same way. So on the one hand, we can think of a territory in the southwest like Württemberg, where we have 57% population loss, 57 um, but mostly after the Battle of Nördling in 1630. On the other hand, Saxony 10 to 20 percent and then a city like Hamburg in the north that is uh, not so um, uh, not so hit. Most of the deaths were a result of disease um, that came in the wake of soldiers moving, fighting rather than um, uh, direct combat, of course. And um, uh, the experience of common people, uh, we will talk about cannibalism, I think, <laughs> uh, was first of all, w when, when the war had its devastating impact, it was because 
because soldiers were quartered in houses. You have to remember this is a period when uh, people live with a very delicate ecology. They have one pig and that one pig will be slaughtered in December and that gets you through winter. They have one cow, that's a cow that gives you all your milk. The soldiers are quartered because the war is meant to feed on the war. They're quartered in the people's houses and you know they just live off the resources because no soldier knows how long he's going to live. Um, so um, there's then also famine and that is where cannibalism comes in. So it's always been um, thought, I mean it's, it's, it's a fear. Um, there's actually very little evidence that it happened but there is some evidence that it did happen um, and that is because also the idea was and it was legitimized since antiquity that it was a sign of absolute desperation um, that made this legitimate. So for instance there's a pastor from an area near Augsburg who writes um in horror about a, a woman who's eaten her husband and his superior simply replies okay just don't punish her too hard very briefly just very briefly just to follow on from Malinka's point about plague it shouldn't be forgotten of course that Italy northern Italy was devastated by a plague as a consequence of incursions of troops from the empire at the end of 1629 into 1630 and Italy wasn't a major battleground maybe we'll come on to talk about this in a bit uh, but nevertheless, its effects were certainly felt beyond the empire as well. Um, Peter Wilson, Sweden then comes into the conflict. As these countries keep popping up, and <laughs> things seem to die down, and then another log's thrown on the fire, isn't it, really? That's right. Now, Sweden blows the idea in every way that it's a religious war, because they go in for commercial reasons, as I understand it. Um, not, not, not exactly, no. I mean, the, the, you're quite right. Um, the Swedish intervention uh, transforms the situation. I mean, the war is effectively over by June of 1629, the emperor has defeated all of his opponents um, and there's about a year uh, uh, and the Swedes intervene so they are celebrated uh, in propaganda and print as saving German Protestants um, that's not the case, they haven't been invited um, the um, brother-in-law of um, Gustavus Adolphus, the Swedish king the, um, the elector of Brandenburg says, uh, you know, the, the, the Swede is a, is, a, is a foreign prince who has no right to be here So why did they go? Um, they come in because uh, they feel their own security interests are affected and they're trying to carve out a Baltic Empire So that's not uh, religion, it's their own security and it, carving out a Baltic Empire? It, it, pretty much um, uh, their intervention's brokered by, uh, by France, which um, helps fund this So uh, that's Catholic supporting Protestants? Indeed it is, it is, yes, that's right. I mean, obviously, um, that what they're pursuing is a, is a war where they see um, re long-term religious goals as reconcilable with their more immediate strategic interests. So they think that an intervention in the empire um, will uh, uh, redress the balance um, and restore the uh, lost rights of the, of the Lutherans in particular. Is there any sense that you're level-headed uh, <laughs> theoretical retrospective view is actually covering up what was opportunism. The empire was weak, it was all over the place, and there was a chance to grab something while the going was good. There, there is, I think, an element of opportunism in um, the Swedish intervention, that's true. I mean, the, the, uh, they land without, uh, with maps that only go um, as far as uh, northern Germany and um, as a result of after about 15 months of intervention of a result of a major victory 
at Brighton felt um, they greatly increase their goals because the scope um, of their operations increases. I, one thing I would add as a bit of caution is that we've got to remember um, they, these are people who are not cynically using religion to excuse things and they are also um, they are all very devout and so they, they, they do think that um, if they act contrary to um, true religion they will be punished for this so there is a measure of caution here. That's right. I don't want to override religion mm. because everybody was bound by most, yeah. Yeah, almost absolutely. everybody. If you weren't, you kept your mouth shut, your tongue was cut out. You were bound by religion at that time. But it wasn't at the forefront. It wasn't we are going to save the souls of the people in North Germany. Uh, not not in, the, in, in terms of the Swedish intervention, no. I think you want to come in. But here also we have a real challenge for historians. How do we read the sources? Mm. If we read the official declaration of Sweden, it is absolutely all about commerce in the Baltic. And at the same time, Gustavus Adolfus writes uh, to the elect of Brandenburg in four lines saying, look, you know, you're either with us and on the side of God or you're on the side of evil. So how do we reconcile these two documents? Well, that's when we had to sort out. <laughs> Plenty to do for the next few minutes. Toby, um, there was a lot of proxy wars going on around the edges. Can you give us one or two of the most prominent ones? Well, we could probably, for simplicity's sake, reduce this to three. The Baltic, and we've heard a bit about that already from Peter. Uh, and this Baltic region involved a series of ongoing dynastic territorial commercial disputes between Sweden and Poland on the one hand and Sweden and Denmark on the other. A uh, second region was the uh, in the Netherlands, involving Spain and the Dutch Republic, as it was. And of course, for the Dutch, this is their 80 years war that had its origins in, 50, in the 1560s, itself resolved in 1648, temporarily put on hold in 1609 and then resumed in 1621. And then a third region would be North Italy. So those, broadly speaking, are the three areas that around the edges that have an impact, a role to play. Olinka, well, you've mentioned documents. Was there any sense in which the press, let's call it the press for ease, played a part in this? Yeah, the press is um, organised in ways that it hasn't been. So we have by um, uh, 1648, we have 30 weekly newspapers with um, a distribution of 15,000 and many more uh, readers. And we have uh, publications like the Theatrum Europeum, which really tries to give um, a, as close an account of battles and of negotiations as possible. That's for literature reader. But then this is also a great age of propaganda. So we have single leaf broadsheets, just as in the Reformation that comes combined images and texts. And for instance, one of the great battles is that of Magdeburg um, uh, that resists uh, the Catholic forces, is then taken by Tilly, and uh, instantly the Catholic propaganda um, uh, celebrates that as a triumph against the maiden who has been taken rightfully. Whereas the Protestants say, well, the maiden is just sleeping and she's waiting for a rescuer. The Protestants build up instantly uh, Gustavus Adolphus of Sweden as a Protestant rescuer. And he dies, of course, very quickly after two years, so in uh, 1632 at the Battle of Lützen, and instantly he's stylized as a martyr who spilled his blood in order to uh, save German liberties and Protestantism. And, of course, there were many tensions, we must not forget, amongst Lutherans even. So Johann Georg of Saxony played a particular role. He is portrayed alongside Gustavus Adolphus to demonstrate Protestant unity. So certainly there's a lot of propaganda that it comes into play. How effective is it? <laughs> 
It, well, it's it's it has a middling uh, effect. I mean, we ha- I think the the thing to do is to is to think that some of this um, material is targeted at particular audiences. So, um, what the general population are getting are essentially messages that are passed through the pulpit, and that is basically um, your sins have caused this war. And so, this is another way in which we can see this as a war involving religion, but not in the way that we would expect religion to be involved. So there are no calls to arms, they're not told to go and massacre their their neighbours. On the contrary, they're told that it's your sinfulness and you need to be obedient and pious and uh, eventually God will, will, will take war a, a, away. So Does God say anything about the devastation of Magdeburg where 20,000 people were killed? Is there any propaganda about the, the, the ma- what we thought of as <coughs> a mass slaughter at that time? It's, there's, there's certainly, um, as Salunka says, I mean, there's, there's a, this, this is woven into the, the sort of Swedish rationale. I mean, the Swedes basically have egged on the Defenders, who have th- accordingly then refused um, summons, uh, and uh, the, the 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 city catches fire, and most of the people are are in fact seemingly suffocated in cellars and so on, rather than directly killed. And it's a disaster uh, for everyone, all concerned. Uh, and so the various Mostly for those who were killed. Well, definitely, yeah. definitely. But I mean, it's it's a it's a political disaster um, for both for both sides. I mean, from the Catholic point of view, the imperial side, they they wanted to capture the city to use it as a base. Um, so Tilly actually has to then publish a kind of defence of, of, of his actions. And uh, for the Swedes, they get, get the, they're get off the hook by the fact that the city has been destroyed because that atrocity then wipes out the fact that they weren't able to save it. You wanted to come in, Toby. Um, just to say again, looking from the margins, from the proxy world, so to speak... Um, What's interesting, I think, in the cases of England, we haven't mentioned England at all so far, uh, the Stuarts. Kept out of it, though. Uh, uh, But also, I think, more particularly, more interestingly, arguably, from the perspective of France, is the potential for domestic opinion actually to uh, play a role, at least to be mobilised or to be called upon. And Richelieu, who is France's chief minister for much of this period, faced enormous domestic pressures for his policies in opposing or seemingly opposing Catholic interests in the empire, at least opposing the imperialists interests and uh, we shouldn't forget that as, as we've been talking about the fact that religion arguably wasn't uh, a component of the war in the way that we might understand there were moments when religion could have a part to play in the political arguments discourse and so on and that's I think very evident in the ways in which French policy making was framed Richelieu had to respond to those kinds of arguments that he was facing at home mm. about the morality for want of a better word of his foreign policies Likewise, I think another actor we haven't mentioned, which from uh, my own work I, I'm interested in terms of the papacy, the papacy's role during th- uh, the entire 30s was, again, is something very interesting. It faces um, criticism at times for not intervening forcefully enough in defence of religion in the empire. There's a lovely um, satire that appears in the wake of Sweden's intervention of the church uh, uh, covered in flies uh, beseeching the beseeching Rome for aid and Rome not coming to the church's aid who fought this war um, there weren't there were, as i understand it there weren't many if any standing armies so who fought who fought this war so there were oh sorry yeah. well, well, there were volunteers but there were conscripts and uh, essentially mercenaries we have uh, up to hundreds of thousands of, of soldiers who fight um where did the mercenaries come from mostly 
Well, they come from um, different um, uh, countries. The Scots are involved, people from uh, Greece, even uh, Cyprus. So it's very multinational. Uh, but of course, most of them were, were Germans. Most of them German, yeah, because that's where it was taken. But you put your hand up. Yes, yeah, so I mean, just, just to sort of qualify the, the, the term mercenary, which is kind of yeah. ahistorical and, and heavily laden with prejudice. And right. um, so I think it's better to think of these soldiers as, as reg- very badly paid and ill disciplined regular troops. Um, uh, they, so they are um, recruited, as Olenka says, from by and large from the subjects of, of the um, uh, the ruler that they are serving, except in the case of um, the Swedes, where they're the German collaborators, the, the princes that have allied with the, 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 the Swedes who are raising the bulk of the troops. But aren't they, you say, local people? Did somebody go around the villages and say, you, you, and you? Or were the people who had already had some training in warfare who were knocking about, who were brought into this uh, into these armies? Well, on the whole, what's really interesting is that um, Germany, because there are no standing armies, I mean, people are not in the frame of mind for soldiering very often. I mean, you know, the rulers try to mobilize them for defense purposes. And the peasants, they're really not interested. They just fool around. Um, So this is very different from our notion of of men actually being interested. They're not. Um, So if we look at the the, the people who do this, we know most about one particular soldier who left a diary uh, from the the time of 1624 to the end of the war. And this is a very typical soldier who fights on different sides. He he marches 25,000 kilometers altogether. He even gets to Italy, which he loves. So, you know, we have to remember that at the time, uh, German life and communities was very rule bound. So this was an opportunity for risk takers. This was an opportunity uh, for men who wanted to go against conventions. That meant, in reality, for instance, a lot of rape, which he records. Um, uh, uh, then he eventually does marry, but then he had to look after a wife and even manage the logistics of having a son and schooling him. So quite remarkably. But yeah, he does, for instance, talk about fighting at Magdeburg. And he does just uh, note, oh, I'm, I was sorry to see uh, this beautiful city of my fatherland go up in flames. And he's heavily injured. But, you know, he does that all and, and just will keep fighting for whoever uh, he's fighting for. I think certainly just to follow on from those points we shouldn't think of this period as one in which there are conscript or volunteers ar- volunteer armies paid for by states from their, of their own subjects and that um, we have a kind of mixed economy of fighting here of public-private initiatives of businessmen, of nobles um, who are using uh, their resources, their connections their credit mechanisms to raise troops in the hope of getting returns at some point uh, and one of the other things I think that's quite striking at various moments throughout the period, not just the Thirty Years' War, is that uh, various armies are multinational. And we've, we've already touched on this. The Dutch armies, for instance, before the Thirty Years' War included people from all over Europe, from Baltic, Scandinavia, from Italy, from the British Isles. Uh, and equally, quite strikingly, again, this comes back to a point we've talked about in relation to religion. These could also be cross-confessional armies as well. That's to say, Catholics fighting in Protestant armies or vice versa. So I have a feeling that the, that the place of the Holy Roman Empire across Europe, these people are moving from one area to another, dependent on opportunities and circumstances and people they owe their allegiance to. And this just goes on and on. Uh, does it ever seem any logic in it? 
yes, there is logic. Uh, I mean, this is the thing. The standard picture is that this is somehow gets out of control. And yeah. uh, if we look at the sort of engravings of the time, so um, Jacques Callot, The Greater and Lesser Miseries of War, and shows all these scenes of plundering. And obviously that, that is happening. Uh, but plundering is incredibly bad for discipline. It, it, it erodes um, military cohesion. And it, it is punished. And the last of Callot's engravings is The Hanging Tree, and they are marauders who are being punished. Um, and it is a, a sign that um, while there were very, very considerable problems, um, this was a war fought conventionally, and the purpose of war was not to exterminate your opponent, it was to force your opponent to make a, an acceptable peace. And um, the negotiations and the diplomacy of the war are very closely linked to um, the military operations, which had that purpose. So how did they go, how did they set about trying to construct a peace treaty which could become a lasting peace, which ended up in the uh, Treaty of Westphalia in 1648. I mean, how do they move towards that? Well, a meaningful beginning to the long to the 1648 settlement really can be located in the early 1640s. But I think Peter's absolutely right. It took, I think, partly because of the way in which people um, went into war, having recourse to arguments, legal arguments, juridical arguments, trying to defend their positions. On the one hand, this made actual negotiating problematic because people would have to come to a point where they would compromise on those principles. But actually, it also made the war receptive to negotiation throughout. That's the point, I think, of legal arguments, that they're open to negotiation. The problem was it's actually getting the different parties, as Peter said, to a point where they're willing to negotiate. And I think that, therefore, comes to the, down to an issue of when their military... Um, successes or failures were out uh, in terms of the balances between those military successes and failures where, when they reached the point where it was no longer to the to a benefit to continue fighting sort of exhaustion mm, no, i wouldn't call really. it exhaustion no. <laughs> no it's more a strategic no. calculation yeah, I think. absolutely this is the thing um i entirely agree i mean this is this war doesn't end through mutual exhaustion they could mm. have carried on fighting but the, the most of the parties have got enough Gain, uh, sufficient gains that, it, that they deem it acceptable to make peace. Well, Nico, what sense were writers of the time and other artists making of this? Well, the best known is Grimmelshausen, uh, but what's important to know about him is that he's born in 1621 and he writes long after. And he um, uh, really sensationalizes um, uh, figures like famously the Courage, uh, a woman who's uh, governed by her insatiable sexual lust and also her insatiable lust for plundering. And his other figure is the simply Tsissimos. So what he wants to move away from, in a way, is that predominant view that um, uh, war is made by God or, you know, divinely ordained. And he depicts it as very man-made, as bringing out uh, the worst in people, such as uh, Courage, who, uh, I mean, this is what keeps readers going, uh, sadly. I mean, uh, scenes of group sex with multiple soldiers and, and so on. So the depravity, and yet she's a kind of very alluring, a can-do woman. She decides to be a farmer and then she is a farmer and she's always cunning and, and a survivor. Both of them are survivors. So, so that is one of the uh, responses. I, Peter, I hurried you through this getting to the peace, which was not exhaustion, <coughs> which I just put forward mm. as a proposition to be contradicted, of course, which you did. Now then, can you tell us a bit more, you two, why why they decided after slogging it out for 30 years that now is the time to stop? A bit more detail. 
well, the, um, the the French and the Swedes, so France has intervened um, uh, in 1635 at the point when it looks as if the, the Swedes uh, are going to be knocked out uh, and the French and the Swedes evolve eventually a fairly effective military partnership which targets the various German principalities that are still backing the emperor and they bully them into neutrality. So gradually the um, parts of the empire that are supporting the imperial armies are shrinking. So the emperor is definitely on, on, a, on a back foot uh, and uh, he has a very effective negotiating team. Um, he makes a series of concessions about the arrangements for the peace negotiations. So two cities in um, the region of Westphalia are declared neutral. These are Münster and Osnabrück. Um, and his generals are, uh, while they still suffer significant defeats, um, nonetheless uh, hold sufficient ground that it becomes obvious to um, the Swedes and the French that uh, this will just drag on forever. Um, and so they, they are prepared to, to, to compromise on some of their demands as well. To go back to the uh, empire, was there any sense ever that the Holy Roman Empire felt we've had it, we're, we're about to disintegrate? Did they ever feel seriously threatened? Um, you mean as an as well, an Yes, empire. the Holy Roman Empire and the people, the well, this, this would, and the people around him. Um, I, I wouldn't think so, um, uh, really. Um, um, I mean, it was you know it was clear that they saw themselves as the um, elected leaders of this entity um, and and uh, were very powerful. So I, I wouldn't. Uh, yeah, there are some pretty dark moments, uh, yeah. but they, the, the 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 point is that they 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 still have sufficient forces to continue fighting, and they're still able to mobilize. So all this disruption support. didn't affect them fundamentally. <clears throat> the ruling Habsburg family of them didn't affect. That's what I'm. That's what I mean by them. Well, it depends on what you mean by fundamentally. Well, let's um, but, just go but, for but the something we should. <laughs> <laughs> how fundamental? I mean, one of the really extraordinary um, uh, features is the financing. I mean, if you just um, think of how expensive. I mean, that's why there is no standing army um, um, in the German because it is so expensive. Um, and yet, the financing goes on and on and on. The resources keep keep moving. But I think a, a point we really have to uh, stress in the program is then how the war is remembered. And we really have to turn to the 19th century. And that is the great age when myths about this um, war are constructed. And what myths are there? Who wants to start with the myths, Toby? Well, just to go back to an earlier point, yeah. if I may, about the uh, existential threat to the empire. If there was a threat, arguably it came from the emperor when he overplays his hand at mm. various moments and the German princes feel threatened. So it's actually reverse threat, not the threat to the emperor, but threat from the emperor. Um Going on to the... Before we get to the myths, yeah, let's just go back to the Peace of Westphalia itself in 1648. Must have been a bit of a surprise to a lot of people. How did it play at the time? How did it go down at the time? Uh, well, the peace negotiations have been going on for a number of years, um, and there are certainly concerns whether this peace will last. Uh, so there are great efforts to convince people that the peace has actually been finally made. So around 30,000 printed copies of the peace treaty are made and distributed. Um, there is a special congress of uh, generals uh, that is held in Nuremberg, which um, settle the process of paying off and withdrawing the troops. That's actually extraordinarily successful. Uh, and by about 1650, it is very clear that the empire is at peace, whereas um, the French and the Spanish are continuing their, their war. Uh, For another the eight west. years. Well, but yes, even longer. They last mm -hmm. um, nine years. 
yes, that's right. Um, and so then we move into this uh, era of um, initially celebration, so literally a big fireworks display at the end of and the, the Swedes try to outdo the imperialists with their firework displays. Uh, so rivalry is still continuing. Uh, but then it, we move into this this um, process of commemoration, which is uh, done deliberately on an on a almost annual basis. Well, let's quickly. talk about commemoration and legacy. Toby. Uh, if I may, before we get there, just very briefly to follow on Peter's point, the choreography of the peace negotiations I think are really quite important, quite uh, uh, fascinating in their own rights. Having these two separate cities uh, effectively taken out of imperial jurisdiction for the duration of the talks. And this, uh, I think, is a, re a, re a response to the delicacies of actually organising a peace on, on this scale, but also between the confessions. And this, it, this does, to a degree, pave the way to future negotiations. Well, I'll go to you, Alinka. What, what was commemorative about this uh, from 1648 onwards? I mean, it's actually commemorated still in the mm. uh, city of Augsburg today. Uh, there's a, a peace meal uh, and children, I think, get something for free. So what matters then, however, in the 19th century is, is the commemoration that is really mm. quite fatal uh, on two levels. Um, so first of all, here arises the idea, partly because Grimmelshausen is now read um, in a major way, that this was a collective trauma for the German nation. And there's myth-making that the opportunity to build a strong Protestant nation-state was lost, in particular when Gustav Adolphus died, that he would have been that leader. And that, in fact, it's a negative commemoration from then on that lasts into the 20th century, that the peace of Westphalia reduced uh, this wonderful nation of culture uh, to uh, just a, a puzzle of little insignificant territories and uh, Germany just into, uh, in a way, yeah, an insignificant um, entity in Europe. I think there's another story also to speak of, which we've mentioned in passing. That's to say the myth of Westphalia. Um, and if we're talking about its legacy, then the legacy for international relations specialists and for historians of diplomacy has been enormous, although misguided. And that's rested very briefly on two foundations. First of all, that this was the last war of religion, and we've already dissected that to a degree. But also that this is the first time, this is the first peace involving states as autonomous, discrete entities who can make their own policies. Both of those foundations, both those claims are problematic. Finally... Yes, I, ent I entirely agree. I mean, I, th I think we, we shift in terms of commemoration, we shift from a fairly positive memory initially. I mean, apart from the destruction, that's emphasised right from the beginning, but that the peace of Westphalia is, a a a a as Toby says, I mean, it's been its international dimension has been exaggerated. It really was a settlement of sort of resetting the imperial constitution, and that is actually very successful. The empire lasts another 150 years or so. When it collapses in the midst of the Napoleon, Wars, then this negative um, narrative sets in exactly as, as Alinka was outlining. Well, thank you very much, Peter Wilson, Alinka Rublak, and Tony Osborne. Next week, it's Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, the great medieval poem set at Camelot at Christmas and lost for hundreds of years. Thanks for listening. And thanks to the listeners for sending that idea in. In Our Time with Melvin Bragg is produced by Simon Tillotson. A new In Our Time book marking the programme's 20th birthday and based on 50 of the most popular programmes is available now. And the In Our Time podcast gets some extra time now with a few minutes of bonus material from Melvin and his guests. What would you love to have said that you didn't say? 
I think um, to come back to your question about the sort of why the war will last so long and what we were talking about in terms mm. of the financing of the war, I mean, I think the thing that we, we missed is really this redistribution of, of um, land and titles and, and jurisdictions. So essentially, because the major rulers can't um, pay their armies, they're relying on the senior commanders to sort of raise these troops on credit, and the senior commanders are being rewarded with... Um, essentially gifts of territory. Uh, so the emperor starts this by confiscating property from um, his opponents and um, the changes that happen in, in Bohemia are the, the, the largest transfer of private property in Europe um, prior to the seizure by the communists, in fact, of the descendants of the beneficiaries of this process in, in, the, in the late 40s. Uh, and then the, the Swedes then copy uh, this process very quickly once they've arrived. And so what you have is... You have the rulers who are essentially in hock to their military commanders and uh, it's then very difficult to make peace without having to actually return some of these, some of these possessions. I read in one of your accounts that um, it, the idea of a standing army became quite attractive. And that was, the, that was when Prussia began to build up a standing army. Yeah, one of the interesting effects is, for instance, if we look at Frederick Wilhelm of Brandenburg and then Brandenburg-Prussia, can be argued um, that his whole sense of how he locates himself in time really shifts uh, with this war, that he thinks of that as a, a period of chaos and uses that as an opportunity mm. to push through against his estates that they must now finance um, a standing army. And this was vastly expensive in order of course he says to um, be able not just to react but you know to act be prepared for defensive wars but as we know with Silesia later on of course these were also aggressive wars that followed then from that Prussian army. And that was a consequence of this uh, 30 years war? Well I mean uh, you know the building up of standing armies was yeah, yeah, yeah. in Prussia. What did you want to say that you didn't say to him? Gosh, one of the things that interests me in my own work are, for instance, the intersections between art and politics. Mm. And we've heard about some of the literary responses to war, but there are also some artistic responses to war that are quite striking. You mean literature is not? <laughs> Visual art, I should say. <laughs> I stand corrected. Visual art. Um, and certainly my own interests in Rubens, who's a fascinating figure in, uh, in this period as an artist diplomat, and somebody for whom art, his visual art, is a way of getting his head round peacemaking uh, and also arguably around cross-confessional peacemaking as well, peacemaking between Catholics and Protestants. If you were to go, for instance, to the National Gallery, you'll see one of his visual responses to war and also in the Dulwich Picture Gallery. And art becomes a kind of international cultural language which can actually mediate other kinds of differences and I think that's uh, for Rubens personally. Well, for Rubens personally, it was a way for him to, um, who, somebody who was based in a, a war-torn area, so to speak, on the front line in Antwerp, which was, had suffered greatly in the war against the Dutch. This is under Spanish control. But also for rulers, for princes and courts who looked to his art and were interested in his art, it was a way in which they could actually have conversations that weren't about weren't directly about divisional politics. Mm. They were shared interests. Did we, <clears throat> did we dig into as deeply as we could have done into the causes of the war? 
Well, th yeah, they are actually. We could. We, we could certainly could say. Yeah. There's lots more yeah, you can say. Yeah. Um, How many more episodes do yeah. you want? I mean, I, I, I think. <laughs> I, mean, I think. Obviously, we didn't even talk about the formation of the Protestant yeah. and the Catholic. That that would be the one thing I. I, I yeah, I mean, to pick up on Olinka's mm. point about Bavaria. I mean, there is mm. there are we know of the Habsburgs. They're the number one family in the empire, but the there is a second family, the Wittelsbachs. And uh, this is also a, an interfamilial feud between them. I mean, there is the Bavarian branch who back the emperor and the Palatine branch oppose the emperor. And it, the Bavarians gain at the Palatine expense. Uh, and uh, there are, they, they had a specific historical precedent for this um, in the middle of the 16th century and they calculate that uh, once their Palatine cousins have put their foot wrong by um, accepting the Bohemian crown, they, they think this is their opportunity about achieving electoral status. So it is taken, the status is removed from the Palatinate and given to, to the Bavarian branch as a reward. And main, in the sorry. Peace of Westphalia, it's enshrined. So suddenly there are eight electors, yeah. and that is uh, so really they managed to be yeah. the eight electors, the yeah. Bavarians, and that One just means that you're. Mm. Um, yeah. That's right, yeah. exactly, yeah. amongst the most powerful people in in that um, structure. Did the empire and the the emperor of the empire go on in that state for much longer, or was it was it weakened by this and uh, bled away in some way? It's, it's, I would argue it's actually strengthened. I mean, many, uh, one of the, the great outcome, really, of the Peace of Westphalia is, is to sort of remove the abstract from um, religious disputes. So you're not arguing uh, whether Lutheranism is better than Catholicism. Theolo theologically, you're arguing, do you have the right to exercise jurisdiction over a particular church? And so it makes it much more difficult to polarise um, disputes. And the empire develops a very sophisticated um, legal machinery um, that resolves these through a process of arbitration. Uh, and these sort of cataclysmic divisions, um, political divisions and otherwise, and, uh, do not reoccur, in fact, until um, the, the rise of Prussia basically breaks the system as being uh, a second disproportionately large and powerful um, German state uh, alongside the Austrian Habsburgs. But finally, as you said, we scarcely mention the Calvinists, who are extremely important. Yes, and we can uh, look at a figure like Frederick of the Palatinate. I mean, here he is, he's age 23. He's very young when he decides to take the Bohemian crown. He's married to um, Elizabeth Stewart, and they really are the kind of glamour couple of the period. He's it's such a coup to have um, married into what is perceived as a, a strong um, uh, English uh, uh, state that, of course, um, has united the crowns um, and uh, is perceived to be uh, uh, much more pecuniary and the Palatin. The Palatin is quite poor. You know, many of these small uh, German territories don't have a lot of financial backing. So here he is, uh, age 23, uh, thinking he can take the Bohemian crown. And there, you know, I do think we need to think a bit more about the psychology of someone like that. What kind of man was he? What was really going on uh, in his mind? But then um, we are sometimes limited by the sources. They don't always tell us. Yeah. Well, thank you all very much. Yeah. Uh, I think we're being interrupted. Interrupted to your coffee. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, a cup yeah. of tea, please. Tea. Yeah, tea would be great. Yeah. Yeah. Teas, Melvin. Yeah. Or teas. Yes, yes. Hi, I'm Monty. Sorry for interrupting your podcast. Just give me a minute. I've got something I think you'll really love. It's called Life Lessons. This is a podcast from BBC Radio 4. It's going to be full of the issues that are important now and we'll hear about them from people who really know what they're talking about because these issues are at the centre of their lives. 
we'll be hearing about period poverty from campaigner Amica George, questioning the food we eat from farmer Kate Moore, the Brexit divide from vlogger Jazza John, and many, many more. Young UK talk about the issues that matter most to them. They're living it so we can learn from it. Subscribe to the Life Lessons podcast. Discover it now in BBC Sounds.